Good morning. Uh, Like Ben said, it's going to be Ezekiel 5, verses 11 through 17. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable things and with all of your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part will scatter to all the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all those who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken when I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. This is the very word of God. Well, if there's one thing that um, over the last couple years uh, I've become pretty passionate about in my own understanding of the Bible and have been trying to help us learn together, it's the fact that uh, the Christian faith is not a private religion. It is a a public story, a very public story. Uh, The world around us wants wants to say, fine, have your Christianity, just keep it private, keep it to yourself, And honestly, we have told them that that's what Christianity is. We have told them that Christianity is a private religion, and we have been wrong. It is not. It is a story, a very public story, a story of history. The Bible is given us the story of the world. And we're looking at the Old Testament pretty much exclusively for this sermon year. And what we find in the pages of the Old Testament, of course, is the story of Israel, the story of God's chosen people. But make no mistake, this is the story of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things good. He made all things wonderful and delightful. But... When humanity rebelled against God and plunged the world into ruin and destruction, God went to work. God made a decision. He chose a people for himself and by his own decree promised that through his chosen people, through his chosen nation, he would bring rescue. The Old Testament prophets would call it would say of Israel that they were to be a light to the nations. So know what this means. God was intending through his chosen people to bring rescue and redemption to the world, to all created reality. The Bible tells us 
the story of the world and the hope of the world. Now, there is, of course, a private element to this story. We must learn to take our place in the story. We must come to understand how Israel's story is our story and therefore where we find ourselves in the great story of redemption. Ezekiel himself has to learn that. Ezekiel has to come to find his own place in the great public story of the world. And I think that's what's going on as we move from chapter 3 into these two chapters we're looking at this morning, Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5. Ezekiel is learning to find his place in the story of redemption. And so we find in these two chapters the initiation that he experienced, the lessons that he learned, and then the judgment that he accepted. The initiation he experienced as he finds his place in the story, the lessons that he learned, and the judgment he accepted. So let's begin with this first point that I am suggesting to you is the way we should read the next two chapters. What we are finding here is Ezekiel's initiation into the prophetic vocation. So we saw in chapter 1 that Ezekiel was planning all along to be a priest. That was the lineage he came from. But now in exile in Babylon with all hopes dashed of him ever being able to function as a priest for Israel, God calls him to a different vocation, namely that of being one of Israel's great prophets. In order for him to be faithful in this work, he's got to go through an initiation. He has to be initiated into the vocation. Before he can go and announce the message that God will give him, he needs to be immersed in the message himself. Now, go back with me for a moment into the previous section at the end of chapter 3. In verse 17, God told Ezekiel that his job would be to serve as something like a sentinel in the army, a watchman. The emphasis here in these verses that we looked at last week is mainly on Ezekiel's responsibility and indeed his culpability. Ezekiel must do his job regardless of how the people respond. And the job of a sentinel is mainly to warn of any danger that is approaching. And Ezekiel is even told that the danger that he is going to see is the coming danger of God's judgment against wickedness, verses 18 and 19, but also against injustice, verses 20 to 21. Wickedness refers to criminal acts, wrongdoing, God, praise be to God, hates all criminal activity and will judge it accordingly. But God's concern in verses 20 to 21 is also about injustice. And we learn then that God, who made the heavens, who made the earth, who made all material things, God expects his world to be run with fairness and equity. So these two words his wrath against wickedness and injustice, these two words then cover sin from both angles. We must do no wrong 
but we must always do what is right. God is against all wrongdoing. God is against all injustice in his world. Now, just as we're coming to grips with that, God does something really strange. If we read on in verses 22 to 27 at the end of chapter 3, the same God who called Ezekiel to go keep watch for Israel now tells him, look at it, go shut yourself within your house. A strange thing to tell a watchman to do. He is then bound up to keep him from going out to the people, and he is tongue-tied so that he cannot warn them. Now, just imagine it. God says, go out, stand guard, and speak when you see the danger coming, but first, go in your house and shut up. Strange. God has told him his job is essentially the work of a watchman, but then God tells him, go home and be quiet. And you're supposed to say, what is this all about? What is going on here? And we learn from Ezekiel 3, verse 27, that this is all, of course, a temporary situation. God is going to speak, and when he does, he will open Ezekiel's mouth, and Ezekiel had better speak. That's the watchman warning, right? But, catch this, until then, until God speaks, until Ezekiel sees the danger that is coming, he has to keep his mouth shut. He must speak only when God speaks. But he must also speak when God speaks and when God gives him the message to speak. Now, that's an important lesson to learn, isn't it? Some of us need to be reminded to open our mouths and speak what God has revealed. Don't be silent. Others of us, which one are you, need to learn to keep our mouths shut a bit more, lest our own opinions be confused for what, in fact, God has said. Ezekiel, if he's going to carry out this vocation, he needs to learn the lesson too. He's not yet ready to go out and be a prophet, to go out and speak for God, because his training is not yet complete. He's going to need to speak God's message, but before he can do so effectively, he also needs to learn the discipline of being, well, how shall we say it? Slow to speak, so that he does not mislead the people he has been, meant, he has been sent to serve. You remember the childhood story of the boy who cried wolf, right? Is it possible that we Christians have failed to be the prophets of God that we are meant to be, not only because we've been silent on matters on which we should have spoken, but also because we've opened our mouths too quickly and said, thus says the Lord, when God, in fact, has not really spoken. We better learn both lessons well. Now, learning that kind of wisdom takes time, just like it takes time to transition from being a child to an adult. The move from adolescence to adulthood is, in virtually every human community, marked with symbolic milestones. Rites of passage, we sometimes call it. There is this period in which a person is not easily defined as either a child or an adult. We call them teenagers. <laughs> what are they? 
we understand that this is a significant and an important moment in a person's life. And we tend to use rituals to help a person make that transition. Anthropologists call it a state of liminality, a process of separation and transition from a previous identity or role to a new one. I was pulling into church this morning. I was thinking about that feeling I had when I would start a new job. That's a process of liminality. You know, you, you, you've left an old career vocation and you're in this new one and it's uncomfortable. Remember that time when you're kind of learning the ropes? All right, Ezekiel in these two chapters is going through that kind of transition. He is being forced to abandon his old state as a priest and he's learning to take on a new identity as a prophet. And God is going to make sure that Ezekiel is ready for this task by teaching him, Ezekiel, you've got to learn to speak God's truth, the whole truth, but also nothing but the truth. And by the way, Christian, if you and I are going to be faithful as the prophets of God that we've been called to be as well, we saw that in chapters, uh, in chapter one and two, if we're going to be faithful then we've got to go through that transition as well. We must eliminate this idea that being a Christian means merely believing something or merely affirming a set of propositions. No way. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, I believe, we're saying, I trust in, I'm giving my whole life over to this. We must learn that to be a Christian means... Since the whole point of being a Christian, it means to, be, to take our place in the story of God. This work of God in which he made a world and put us as his image bearers to rule and reign in it. Eliminating wickedness, but also opposing all injustice. This is going to take some serious effort on, in our, on our part. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argued, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. But unfortunately, it works, uh, sorry, but fortunately, it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. One of the reasons, he says, why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. So let's look now at what specific education Ezekiel is getting as he is being initiated into the prophetic office. What are the lessons that he needs to learn? And perhaps these are not dissimilar from the lessons that we have to learn if we're going to be Christian disciples. So in chapters 4 and 5, Ezekiel goes through a set of various sign acts. But they're, they're rites of passage. He is being moved, fully immersed into his prophetic vocation. 
And yes, what you read here in these chapters are some really strange things. But looked at from the outside, so is every rite of passage. They're all bizarre. We just had a wedding in our church this week. We just went through a rite of passage. Um, and if, you were, if you're familiar with weddings, <laughs> and you are, then you've gotten accustomed to the rites of passage. But some of them are bizarre. I mean, if you were an alien dropping in from outer space, you'd be like, why are all these people dressed up in these funny clothes? Why are they, like, walking down the aisle, smiling, pictures being taken? What's going on here? What's this strange moment? What are these crazy vows that are being said? What is a vow? And why a ring on the finger? Why, why is all this happening? These are rites of passage. You're used to them, so they're not strange anymore, but all of them are strange, looked from the outside in. So let's, let's, let's peer in for a moment. It's going to be strange. These rites of passage are bizarre, but there's a meaning to them, right? There's significance. There's symbolism that's meant to fully immerse us into the reality that they're meant to signify. Are you with me? That's what a rite of passage is. So here, here's Ezekiel's rites of passage. Chapter 4, the first three verses, Ezekiel is told to engrave the city of Jerusalem on a brick. By the way, this was a practice that was pretty common. Archaeology has actually uncovered for us bricks with maps of ancient cities drawn on them. So this isn't as bizarre as we might think. But the reason for Ezekiel's portrayal of the city is so that he can... Um, play army <laughs> against the city, enacting the ancient warfare strategy of a siege. Now, again, you and I are not used to that unless you're a historian, you love history, but he actually represents here pretty, pretty accurately what would happen in the ancient tactic of a siege. In verse 3, he is instructed to represent an iron wall between himself and the city, and then these words, he's to set his face toward it and let it be in a state of siege. And we find here the purpose of this all, this rite of passage stated explicitly, this is a sign for the house of Israel. A sign of what? It is, in fact, a sign of the coming Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Just look it up. Look it up in Wikipedia. Like, this, this is exactly what happened to Jerusalem that Ezekiel is portraying years before. But the lesson that Ezekiel was to learn was not simply that God can predict the future. The lesson was that when all this took place, when the Babylonian armies came against Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and literally set a siege against it, when all this took place, here's the lesson. It would not be because... The Babylonians were more powerful than the people of Israel. He's not just predicting this army's going to conquer the other army. Here's the lesson. It would all happen because God would be the aggressor against the people of Israel, not the armies of Babylon. When you see the armies of Babylon, Ezekiel, it's not really Babylon. It's God himself who has come against his own people. Yes, let it sink in. God would be on the side of Babylon rather than Israel. 
against his own people. That is what is meant by the iron barrier. Something had come between Israel and her God, and God was against the city. His face was set against the city, meaning that God would be the active agent of the city's destruction. Now, as a private event, as a rite of passage, the impact on Ezekiel is that he has to take the posture that God's word to his people was a word of destruction against their great city. To be on God's side then, to be faithful to God, would mean, think of it, it would mean that you would now have to also be against the city, of your, your own city, against Jerusalem. Now, that is a risky theological position to hold. Not just theological, that's a risky political position to hold. Um, imagine someone saying today, the, the, these can, just stay with me, this can be... This can get the ante up real fast. But just imagine someone saying today, God is against America, and there's no hope. This country needs to go down. Now, if somebody said something like that today, you'd feel it. Like, you would have an opinion about a person like that. That wouldn't just be, oh, that's their private religion. That would get you worked up. And plenty of American Christians would probably say, that guy's wrong, false prophet. And, and I'm not using that illustration to suggest that that's the prophetic view that one should hold. Put that to the side for a minute. I'm saying that's how Ezekiel's words would have landed on his people. So Ezekiel, you're going to you're gonna have to go and carry that kind of a message to your own people. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to drink it in. You're going to have to be fully immersed in this. So that's the first rite of passage. Now there's more. Ezekiel is told to lie on his left side for 390 days. Don't worry. More likely, this was like a work day for him, right? God would let him get up and, you know, go to sleep. But for 390 days, he's got to take his posture lying on his left side. And then after 390 days, glad that's over, flip over, and you got 40 more days on the other side. Bizarre. It's a rite of passage. We've got here a total number of 430 years because there's likely no distinction. Ezekiel makes no distinction, by the way, between Israel and Judah. So he's probably, we're supposed to take these, this number in total. Now, everyone wants to know what date the 430 years stands in reference to? Oh, this is the fun stuff, right? I mean, you just open the commentaries and everybody goes crazy doing all the calculations. And by the way, that's fair. In fact, I think that there is a right way to do this calculation. And the key to the calculation is to understand that the word punishment in verse 4, used over 200 times in the Old Testament, usually is translated iniquity or guilt. In other words, the word itself can look backward to the crime that was done or forward to the punishment that the crime deserves. And I think that's the key to understanding the 390 and then the 40. The 390 probably looks back first, and Ezekiel has to look back first to all of the years, the accumulated weight of Israel's rebellion and transgression against God. 
And if you add 390 years to the time of his prophecy, it will put you back roughly pretty close to the time in which Israel's monarchy began. When Israel said, we will not have God, we will have a king just like the rest of the nations. That's when the great rebellion against God began. And Ezekiel is then told to flip over and bear the punishment looking forward 40 years. 40 years in the Bible is a very symbolic number, of course, to a period of punishment. You know, like Israel's days in the wilderness when they rebelled against God after the Exodus. It's like a new period of exile that Israel is now about to enter into. And this is the point that's being impressed upon Ezekiel. Again, remember, he's going through a rite of passage. He's learning his, he's getting a message from God. This is the theology. This is the story. This is what God is going to do in real time and space in history. And here's the message. Ezekiel, listen. There's nothing that can be done to stop the punishment. There's no going back. There is no atoning for the sins of Israel to spare the city from destruction. The wrath of God is going to be poured out. The only thing you can do is announce that the warning, is, the, announce the, warning the judgment is coming. God's determination is set. He will destroy his city. There's no way out of it. The wrath of God against his own cannot be averted. It will have to come down. And Ezekiel, if you're going to be faithful as a prophet, if you're going to fulfill your prophetic test, you've got to feel the weight of that in yourself because it's not going to be a, pro a very popular message to proclaim. You will have to bear the punishment of the people. You're going to have to undergo the fate of Israel along with the nation. Ezekiel himself doesn't get out of it. He suffers the fate along with the nation. Now, the rest of chapter 4 consists of another sign act of the meager rations available during a siege. You go through a siege, the way that you typically win is by starving out the people inside the city. You cut off the city from all support coming in from the outside, and you wait it out until they starve to death. Ezekiel has to feel the weight of it. So, this is, a, by the way, this is an awful experience that none of us in the West, really, if we're honest, can even begin to imagine. So, Ezekiel, to be initiated into this, he has to not only imagine it, he's got to embody it. He must experience it himself. He must feel it. He must bear the iniquity of Israel's sinful rebellion by, look what happens. He has to eat here during his portrayal of the siege, barely eight ounces of bread a day, and he gets roughly two-thirds of a quart of water. In other words, this is hardly enough to even keep a person alive. If Ezekiel survives this rite of passage, it will, it will literally be a miracle. Verses 16 and 18 explain God's intent. He says, Israel is going to rot away because of their punishment or their iniquity. Starvation, literally, would most certainly occur for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A near miracle if there's any survivors left. God's wrath, his righteous wrath, against Israel for their rebellion will be so severe that if you're like Ezekiel, you're beginning to wonder, this is the end of the story. Like, this is the end of the world. This is the end of any hope. But then you want to know about verses 12 to 15, don't you? 
These are the verses that really catch our attention. Ezekiel is told that the little food that he will eat has to be cooked over a fire fueled by human excrement. Yeah, that's in the Bible. And when Ezekiel protests, God allows him, thankfully, to use cow patties for his fuel instead. But the point here is Ezekiel's concern for ritual purity. Notice, he protests, I have never defiled myself. I mean, I've been planning to be a priest for crying out loud. And what God's intention here is to say that Israel is about to be completely defiled, made just like the rest of the nations. Again, all hope for the world seems to be diminishing by every rite of passage. God wants Ezekiel to learn that not only will Jerusalem fall, not only will God's mercy come to an end, but Israel will lose its very identity as God's chosen people set apart from the rest of the nations. Remember, in Israel's sacrificial system, ritual purity required that the priest keep himself from impurity and death so that he could bring deliverance, rescue to the rest of the people who had come under that very impurity and death. And Ezekiel's protest here is granted, though God nowhere suggests that the future that is here predicted is going to change. Ezekiel has to learn that what is about to happen to Jerusalem, the coming judgment of God is not only going to threaten Israel's very existence as a nation, but it is also going to threaten her very existence as a royal priesthood. And again, you've got to track the story. That means doom for all of us. If Israel goes down so does the light to the nations. So does the hope of the world. The future for Israel then, Ezekiel is beginning to see, and thus for the, very, for the whole world is looking very grim. Now, one last sign act that Ezekiel performed as part of his initiation is found in the first four verses of chapter 5. Here he is instructed, again, looks bizarre, to cut off the hair of his head and beard, weigh it, and divide it into thirds. He then symbolizes the fate of Israel with what he does with the hair. A third burns in the fires of the siege. A third are killed as they try to escape the city. And a third are exiled and scattered to the nations with many perishing in those lands. A small number seems to survive all this, if you're reading it along here, though that small number is itself winnowed down even more. Ezekiel is forced to see that in this coming judgment of God, only a remnant will survive, a very small remnant indeed. So these are the lessons that Ezekiel had to learn. As a watchman for Israel, his task would be to announce the wrath of God that he sees coming, a wrath that cannot be averted, a wrath that leaves little hope for Israel and therefore little hope for the world. No wonder God told Ezekiel, back at chapter 2, verse 7, the house of Israel is not going to listen to you. I mean, think of it. A message of judgment with inescapable wrath is a message that leaves you with really no other response than, well, we got nothing left to lose, so we might as well just fight it as long as we can. 
we might as well just resist this wrath and try to survive as long as possible because doom is coming. That's all we got left. Just try to make it. It's the only possible response. I mean, if, if you're told that here comes an enemy that's going to destroy you, there's nothing you can do to stop it, then I guess the only thing you can do is try to fight it as long as possible. Good luck. But what if you took the other approach? What if instead of resisting the wrath, you accepted it? And didn't resist it. This is what Ezekiel had to do. It's what his initiation was all about. Strange as it may seem then, accepting the judgment of God, the utter destruction of God's judgment, is precisely where hope is found. Now, let's, let's see if we can understand this. The meaning of all this initiation rites that Ezekiel went through is stated plainly right here, the passage that Kevin read for us, Ezekiel 5, beginning verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. And look what he says. God put Israel at the center of the nations. Don't miss that verse. You don't... <laughs> This is why we struggle to understand the Old Testament, because we just don't accept its story. God made a promise to a nation that through them, he would bring salvation to the world. The whole problem of Adam and Eve's fall in the garden would be resolved through a people, through the nation of Israel. This is the great promise of the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I put you, he says, at the center of the nations. That's not a geographical statement. It is a theological statement. The promise of God is right here in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 12, 11 says, the place where God would cause his name to dwell. This would be the place where, in essence, heaven and earth would meet and salvation would be found. God would rule his world through his chosen people. But Jerusalem herself had rebelled against my rules, God says. And look what he says, by doing wickedness more than the nations. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statues. Now, just think of it. Again, man, you got to read your Old Testament this way. If God's own chosen people, the very ones that God chose in order to govern his world with love and justice, if they themselves are rebels, if they begin to follow their own heart and go their own way, what should God do? I didn't really mean that to be a rhetorical question, but okay. Let me ask it a different way. If God's own chosen people, the ones he chose for this reason, not chose them because he likes them and he's going to take them away to heaven, but chose them because he saved them to save the world, if they themselves have begun to turn away from God, rebel against him, go their own way, and draw the nations 
further into darkness and delight, what must God do if indeed he loves his world that he made? And the answer is, he's got to intervene. In fact, to put it in biblical terms, he's got to be faithful. He has to be true to his covenant. If the people chosen to be the light to the nations have only led the nations into further darkness, then God, he's, he must act. His judgment, in fact, is the only hope left for the world that he made. So far in Ezekiel, the hope that we have seen is a flickering candle. You know, that one you look at, it's like just about to go out. But it is there. It is there. Ezekiel's vocation as a prophet and a watchman leaves us at least some chance however remote it might be, that somebody's going to hear. Somebody will hear and obey. The vision of the glory of God in chapter 1, that great vision, God on the move, alive and well, gives us hope that maybe, just maybe, the God who made the world out of nothing can do some new thing with the chaos that's left after his righteous wrath has been poured out. And the very fact that what is about to happen to Israel is not the wrath of the Babylonians, but the wrath of God himself is strangely very good news. Listen to me. On the one hand, it means that the coming destruction of Jerusalem is a greater and more fearful wrath than the triumph of any foreign enemy. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But on the other hand, David, having sinned against God, was asked, what punishment should I give you? And here's what he says, 1 Chronicles 21, 13, let me fall into the hand of the Lord rather than the hands of men. Why did he say that? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why would David say, well, then let me fall into the hands of the living God instead of the hands of men? You know why he said it? 1 Chronicles 21, 13, because the Lord's mercy is very great. The 40 years of Israel's punishment in the wilderness would be exhaustive, utter destruction, The nation, a third killed, a third scattered, a third burned in the fire. Total destruction. It takes out, wipes out an entire generation of people who had rebelled against God and against his commands, who had brought injustice upon this world that God loves so much. But after the wilderness wanderings, there's a new exodus. With Joshua leading the people across the Jordan River, just like Moses had led them across the Red Sea. So what if instead of resisting the wrath of God, what if we were to accept the judgment of God? What if we were to receive the wrath of God and then ask the question, now what? What might, what might God do next? What if instead of exerting our meager power, against God, we were to say, mercy. Mercy, O Lord, now what can you do? What if as Christians, 
we were to stop forcing our own way by our own power and give in to the power of God's kingdom. What might he do? Well, this is why we've got to learn to read the Old Testament the way the first Christians read it. So that when we pick up our New Testaments, we can feel the excitement they felt. We've lost it. We've lost the excitement that the first Christians felt because we don't read our Old Testaments the way they read them. I'm trying to help us do better. I'm trying to do better. Like, I'm learning this too. So let's learn it. In the wake of the crucifixion of Christ, his resurrection and his ascension, the early Christians began to see that Jesus did what Ezekiel did. Jesus also decreed judgment against Jerusalem. You've read the Gospels. And in his own sign acts, he reenacted this coming destruction. And then he underwent in himself the very fate that he had pronounced against the holy city and its temple. So what, you say? Well, that's, that's neat. Neat. That's really cool. You read your Old Testament, and you're like, oh, Jesus did the same, the cool Bible trick, Ben. That's awesome. Like, so what? Well, here's the point. Having taken on himself the full brunt of God's righteous wrath, then guess what resurrection means? Guess what it means? It can only do, it can only mean one thing. It can only mean Guess what? God has indeed spared a remnant. The root of Jesse is beginning to spring again. A new creation has begun. The long-awaited kingdom of God has arrived. And the first Christians went out and said, it happened. It's true. The kingdom of God has come. And hear the good news this time, this new work of God, this new creation could never again come under the judgment of God's annihilating wrath. The apostle John would see in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. And not only that, he says, he also saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then comes this good news. Listen to it. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God now dwells with his people again. He has returned into his temple. He will dwell with them, it says. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Let it sink in, people of God. Let it sink in. When you understand what Jesus accomplished in light of the Old Testament story, then you come to see that what Jesus accomplished was nothing less than the fulfillment of God's great promise to Israel for the sake of the world. In Jesus, the new creation has begun. The kingdom of God has arrived. 
and you live in it right now. Now, you want in on it? Then you got to be initiated. You must trust in Jesus and be initiated into him. You better hear this, Christian. Remember that day when you got into a tank of water? We're Credo Baptists. You better remember it. Do you know what was happening in that strange ritual? I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Like, we get in that thing, everybody's watching. How many of you feel a little nervous on the day of your baptism? Go ahead, raise your hand so all the unbaptized here can be, it's okay. Like, it's strange, it's weird, right? But do you know what the rite of baptism is all about? Well, I need another sermon for that. But, okay, partly what it's about, it's about being stripped of your old identity. By the way, the earliest Christians got baptized in the nude. So, praise be to God, we've made some adjustments, all right? You're welcome. But you know why they did that? Do you know why they did that? They understood the meaning. You're going through a state of liminality. you got to be stripped of all the old identities, all of your old idolatrous ways. This is not a private religion. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is going to impact the world and every aspect of it. And the only way it can do that is by you being stripped of your old identity, your old idolatrous ways, in order to emerge with a new identity and by the promise of his Holy Spirit given to all who belong to him, enabled to live in a new way. Want in on it? Then you must come to Jesus and you must take up his cross. You must come to Jesus and you must die. Utter destruction in order to have his new life. Those who learn his ways and live them by his spirit, offer to the world the hope of the very one they are called to emulate. That's who you are. That's what God has done. Let us rejoice in it together as we pray. Heavenly Father, teach us like Ezekiel that there's no, there's no halfway here. There's no taking up bits and pieces of the story. If you want in on it, you got to go all in. No one, Jesus said, having taken his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's no halfway. We're either all in with Jesus or we are against him. Now, you have to teach us, O oh Lord that what that means is there can be no pride in our hearts, that we have somehow found our way and we're better than anyone who does not yet believe. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. For all the pride in our hearts that has led us, your people, this week to pick up idols again instead of being reformed in the image of Jesus. 
oh, have mercy. But we also extend to all who do not yet believe in Jesus. This is the hope of the world. It's not us. We're not good news. We are still idolatrous, hypocrites, in need of repentance and transformation. But please, the hope of the world is Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Lord of the universe. And if we come to him, a God of infinite mercy, he will not cast us out. So bring salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.